Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Edward II. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens from Alpha the Great uh, to Elizabeth II of England, of course. Of England, yeah. Yep. Scotland. No, as we're going to see. Indeed. Perhaps uh, one of the candidates for a great British Rex Factor featured today who will not be eligible for the English Awards. Well, maybe that's something we could do. Maybe, when we finish English ones. Or we'll a poll. Back. We could run a poll on we our Facebook indeed. group. We could, because we have a Facebook page. Yes, we do. How do people like us on Facebook? Uh, yeah, so you can find us on... Facebook, if you search for Rex Factor Podcast, and you'll find us there. We're the one, we've got the same logo on there. We're a community, if that helps your search. And up there, we'll have dates of the new uh, podcasts when they're out, and uh, some perhaps some questions, some polls. Yes. Yeah. And like us. If you oh, please. like us. That's how to do it. Yes, yes, like us. Yeah, there you go. As well as Facebook, you can still email us um, at rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com, or follow us on Twitter at, rect, uh, at rexfactorpod. And we've had uh, a tweet from somebody again, uh, David Nolan, at David73277, who uh, gave us a shout-out to his followers, and uh, described us thus, a lively British history podcast, it's a bit like a strange mix of In Our Time and Steve Wright in the afternoon. <laughs> he said what? <laughs> Steve, I'm, well, that's, I mean, Steve Wright is a legendary broadcaster. I'd like to feel that I'm sort of doing the Melvin Bragg radio for <laughs> In Our yeah. Time's being an awful And I'm playing Sunday morning love songs, that's yeah. lovely. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for all the other people who've um, been giving us forward uh, follow Fridays and stuff. Very welcome. Yeah. Anyway, we're now on to Edward II, having done Edward I, your Legend. great hero last yeah, week. Yeah, he is. He's his really son. So, Edward II was born in 1284, the son of Edward I and Eleanor of Castile, and he becomes king in 1307, so he's about 23 years old. So, again, a pretty good... And uh, adult age. Edward I was 31. He was sort of early 30s, yeah, yeah. Better age. And he is the 18th great grandfather of Elizabeth II. Right. Now, in terms of his appearance, he's very much like his father. He's tall, he's strong, golden haired, good looking, and apparently didn't inherit his father's slight lisp. Oh, uh, right. So, in appearance and everything, yeah. he's very grand, he's very dramatic, he's, he's a good horseman. Yeah. But, as Antonio Fraser has said, this is something of a magnificent shell. Mm, a Beh- facade. Indeed. Behind the mask, he doesn't quite have the qualities no. of his father, as we shall soon see. But don't let that sway us. No, we're not going to be judging still him. Still might get the Rex Factor for something I've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> he does inherit a rather difficult legacy from his father, Edward I. Edward had a great reputation, considered to be a brilliant king at the time. He conquered Wales, fought in the Crusades, of course, had some big victories against Scotland... And uh, impossible expectations, really, for anyone to follow, let alone his son. No, I mean he's following a Rex. He's got a, they're following a man with a Rex factor. Exactly, very difficult to mm. do. Um, the barons Edward had left um, an increasingly tyrannical reign in his later years, and there was a strained relationship. So rather like Richard the Lionheart and John, they sort of tolerate some of the tyranny and hardship under the great king. But then when the next one comes in, they're not going to be yeah. so forgiving. Yeah. Scotland, although he had some victories, Edward I, it was very costly and it was a difficult war where it wasn't really very clear if they were going to be able to actually win, mm. but England's now committed. And their relationship was quite strained. Edward, very first, very strong-willed, a bit overbearing, 
psychologically probably left a few impacts on his yeah, son. Yeah, I'd imagine it'd be pretty tricky having him as your father. Anyway, he does accede to the throne against his father's wishes, who, if you recall, when he died going to kick the Scots, mm. had wished that his bones would be preserved and taken on campaign so they, they could they witness the final yeah. defeat. Yeah. Edward II doesn't bother with that. Straight back to London, doesn't bother attacking Scotland and buries his father at Westminster. Probably for the best. Given yes. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he recalls Piers Gaveston, who is his favourite, who'd been exiled by Edward I, yeah. and he marries uh, the young princess Isabella of France, who's the daughter of the then King of France. Yeah. Now, um, we need to be careful, or we, I need to be careful here about my interpretation of the film Braveheart. Yes. Because <laughs> wasn't it uh, um, Gaveston who was pushed out the window in the film? By the first, yes. which didn't happen. Which didn't happen. Neither did he. So he then marries the French princess. Edward II marries the French princess Isabella of France, who, unlike in the film Braveheart, <laughs> does not have an affair with William Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> However, she does become known as the She Wolf of France, so she does require something of a reputation, ah. but not with William Wallace. Now, we're going to do things slightly differently this week. We had feedback from one of our listeners, Louise, who said that she's enjoying the podcast, but sometimes finds it a little bit hard to keep track of who all the different people and names are. Mm, fair enough. So what we're going to do, you should see on the website that we've now got a who's who for each episode as they come up now. So if you're listening you can't remember who somebody is, we'll have a short biography on the website or the Facebook page, and you can just remind yourself. Yeah. And this week, everything very much in Edward II's reign based around the personalities of himself and the nobles and his wife. So what we're going to do is we're going to break it up person by person, depending on who is sort of the most important character at that time. So hopefully that'll be a bit easier to follow. So, our first important character. Piers Gaveston. So, Piers Gaveston, the first person on our list. He's a handsome and flamboyant knight uh, from Gascony in France and was a childhood friend of Edward's, Edward II's this is. But he was exiled under the previous king, Edward I. Because he was so much of a favourite. Because he was so much of a favourite, a bit of a bad influence, there was some bad behaviour, mm. Gaveston abandoned a campaign in Scotland to go off and do something else. Mm. And also they were seen as being a little too close, as we shall yeah. see shortly. Once Edward II becomes king, as we said, he recalls him pretty much straight away. That's the first thing he does, brings him back from exile. And then he gives him undue prominence, because he's quite a low-born figure, yeah. Piers Gaveston. But nevertheless, Edward makes him the Earl of Cornwall, which is a title usually reserved for people of royal blood. Yeah, that was Edward I's uncle. Mm. Ah, crikey. Yeah. And even today, it's still, that's a royal Dashie of Cornwall, title. Yeah. He uh, is able to marry Edward's niece, so he's got a bit of royal yeah. marriage going on, yeah. and uh, he organises and leads the coronation of Edward II. And then when Edward goes away to marry in France, Isabella, he leaves him as the regent. So that's not favourite so much as... A, yeah, a sort of regent, um, two, we've got two kings going on. He, really yeah, I mean, that's the only time. He doesn't generally have any political power. He's usually just wealth and privilege and patronage and land. An he advisor, probably. Yeah, well, he doesn't tend to pursue political ambitions much, right. but he's very rich. And the ba- barons hate him because not only is he given undue prominence, but he's also very arrogant, displays his wealth um, openly and insults them. Right, you're about to it. Openly <laughs> insults yeah. them. Moreover, it was rumoured at the time that their relationship was a little too close, dare we say it, 
homosexual. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, the barons very unhappy. So in 1309, they force Edward to exile Piers Gaveston. They've had enough. They're not dealing with it. Saying right, he goes, or we kick off. Yeah. yeah. So he goes. Mm. However, pretty shortly after that, Edward brings him back. Right. They're not too happy about this. So we have established something called the Lords Ordainers. And this is an assembly of eight earls, seven bishops and six barons. So in 1311, they impose these ordinances. So it's sort of uh, restrictions on Edward's power as king. So they now say um, officials can only be appointed by the consent of the barons. You can't go to war without the consent of the barons. Parliaments must be held at least once a year. Revenues have to be paid directly into the exchequer rather than the royal household. And Piers Gaveston has to be exiled. So the last one's a bit more personal. Yes. <laughs> we were seeing more of this birth of democracy, but there's a little bit of personality in there too. Bit of personality. Yeah. And they want this to be a perpetual exile now. They're right. He's never coming back. He's gone. Mm. Edward says, yes, OK. Within two months, Gaveston comes back and he appears openly at the Christmas court. And the barons have just absolutely had enough now. They take up arms against Edward and Gaveston and they're forced to, fly, uh, to flee, to run off and try and... Edward and Gaveston are. Yeah, so they move away. Crikey. A bit worried about this. Gaveston is forced to surrender at uh, Scarborough Castle when he's besieged by a more moderate earl, who's the Earl of Pembroke, and he swears to guarantee Gaveston's safety. However, whilst Pembroke is away and he's held in captivity, the Earl of Warwick, who's a rather more hardened figure, comes along, snatches uh, Gaveston, and then a group of the more rebellious and angry earls gather together, and chief amongst whom is Thomas, Earl of Lancaster. And he takes charge of the proceedings, and without any particular trial or anything like that, gets a couple of his knights to finish off Gaveston. One of them runs him through in the stomach, then he's beheaded and just left there. Gaveston's dead. God, that's, that's <laughs> going to score well in Scandal. It is indeed. The impact of this, of course, Edward II is going to want to have vengeance because they've killed his favourite, mm -hmm. if not more than his favourite. But Thomas Lancaster, as we see, very powerful earl, and he's going to keep control of Edward. Yes. What's he about then? Thomas Lancaster. So, Thomas Lancaster, the next man controlling the events of the reign. He is the, the classic overmighty earl, someone who's of royal blood, but not of one of the people who's going to be inheriting mm. the throne. But he's managed to amass wealth and power to such an extent that he's almost more powerful than the king. A good Godwinson chap. How, yes, a Godwinson, back to the Saxons, good yeah. reference. <laughs> um, so he holds five earldoms, which is quite a healthy number, had over 50 knights in his revenue, uh, retinue, which is equivalent to how many Edward II would have had in his royal household. Yeah. So these are the specialist yeah. uh, noble knights as well as a very large private army at his command. And his estates were worth about £11,000 a year. What's that in context? Oh, well, in context, we had Edward I, who had 25000 at the start of his... Yeah, reign. and he was ultimately earning about £100,000 a year. But basically, Lancaster has got yeah, a huge, huge amount of wealth yeah. and land that he's got there. He's sort of dominating proceedings, but Edward wants to try and re-establish himself. Then at 1314, the Battle of Bannockburn... Mm. Um, because it wasn't consented to by Parliament, uh, Lancaster feels that he can refuse Edwin's summons of military service. And sure enough, off Edward goes, and as we'll see in more detail later, it's a disastrous defeat for England um, against Robert the Bruce in Scotland. England humiliated, lots of um, 
nobles and soldiers killed, and when Edward returns, Lancaster basically takes pretty much control. So from 1314 to 17, Edward is little more than a puppet king. Because you've got half of the crown out of the battle, effectively. You've got half, mm. uh, as, as many knights would be there, mm. are not there. Yeah. And so he's one lot suffers a defeat, next lot's there ready to... Mm, yeah, and Edward's reputation is destroyed by the mm. fact that he's lost this battle with overwhelmingly higher number of forces than the Scots. Yeah. So Lancaster pretty much in control... Um, but in 1318, um, our moderate friend, the Earl of Pembroke, engineers a bit of a reconciliation. So there's a Treaty of Leek, whereby rather than just being controlled by Thomas Lancaster, Edward will be controlled by Standing Council, which sort of provides consent for all matters not requiring parliamentary approval. So Edward's still under the thumb of the nobles, but more nobles rather than just the one. Rather than the ones that just want to get him. Yeah. Mm. So he uses um, this to his favour. So in 1319, Edward and Lancaster fall out again during a failed siege of Berwick. And Edward starts to give prominence to some more favourites. Sorry, who was sieging Berwick? Lancaster and Edward. Oh, they're working together? Working together, but they fall oh, out right. in the process. Okay. Yeah. Lancaster storms off, and they're at odds. But their conflict is exacerbated by the fact that Edward finds some new favourites to promote. In this case, the Dispensers. They, they sound like a, a evil cult. Well, we've got Hugh Dispenser and Hugh Dispenser. It's a father and son. So we've got Dispenser the older, Dispenser the younger. It's particularly the younger. Oh, so I hope you're listening, Louise. We've yes. got Hugh Dispenser and Hugh Dispenser. <laughs> yes. So it's particularly Hugh Dispenser the younger that he really favours. But again, like with Gaveston, giving them lots of land, lots of power, they're the ones at court that he's listening to and spending his time with. But unlike Gaveston, the Dispensers have got very strong political ambitions. So it's all building to a head, particularly when they start to come at odds with the marcher lords in Wales. Mm. So, 1321, Lancaster and the marcher lords, particularly Roger Mortimer, oh, yeah. we'll have more of later, they demand that the Dispensers be exiled, which initially they are, and then they become pirates in the English Channel. <laughs> but 1322, Edward takes decisive action against Lancaster and the marcher lords, gets an army together, moderate opinion on his side, and they storm off after Lancaster, forces them off into Wales, Mortimer gets imprisoned, and Thomas Lancaster is defeated at the Battle of Boroughbridge. And what forced this move? Just He has his reasons why he's able to start it, he basically because he wants to reassert himself, yeah. but they're able to get a sort of a casus um, belly, whereby Isabella, his queen, wants to be admitted to Leeds Castle which is under the control of um, the rebel faction, and they refuse her admittance, and then fighting breaks out. So Edward's then able to say, ah, oh, you've yeah, dishonoured yeah. and attacked my wife. I'm going to storm in and... Right, so as a, a powder keg, they just needed a spark. Yeah, they needed something. Yeah. Probably engineered, it's yeah. fair to say, but tactically astute. So he's captured Lancaster, and it's his chance for revenge for the murder of Gaveston. So he's sentenced to be hung, drawn and quartered, but his sentence is commuted to a mere beheading in light of the fact that he's got royal blood. Right, and this is... Uh, that's unlike his father as well. Mm. And so he's forced to kneel down facing Scotland because in his final um, bits of his campaign, Thomas Lancaster, he tried to appeal to Scotland and Robert the Bruce for aid. So they were able to say, you know, you're a traitor, you were mm. in league with the Scots. And he's killed, he's beheaded, so the almighty Thomas Lancaster is brought down 
Well, that's more impressive than I'd imagine from Edward II. He defeats a powerful... Yeah, man. much more impressive. So Edward now is uh, able to reinsert himself in league with his new favourites and the new people who are going to be controlling events. Hugh Dispenser times two. So as we said, we've got two Hugh Dispensers, which mm-hmm. is typically confusing. The older one and the younger one, but it's the younger one who's more important. They become Edward's new favourites, and they're promoted to top positions in court, in government, given lots of land and patronage, and they're the ones that are advising him on policy and everything that's going on. And once again, Edward seems to be very much easily led. Once he comes to like somebody, that's who he listens to. And they oversee something of a tyranny. So as well as Lancaster, there are about 100 other people who are either executed or imprisoned who were on the rebel side, so they right. really lay down the yeah. law there. Edward reinstates them, because they had been exiled. He dissolves the Lord's Ordainers and annuls everything in the ordinances where we'd had royal power being checked. Gets mm. rid of all of that. Mm. And uh, the dispensers do a rather bullying tactic in the way they start to acquire more land, particularly targeting vulnerable widows, and basically well, forcing the land to come back into their own hands. In Scotland, 1322, they go off on another campaign to try and make amends for the disaster at Bannockburn. They have another farcical campaign. They have to abandon it because there's basically no food anywhere See, in southern Scotland. didn't learn from his dad about proper military campaigning you need to plan. Exactly. And what's worse is that when they were retreating, the Scots launch a sort of retaliatory raid and Edward and Hugh are very nearly captured in the process. They've got loads of food, presumably. They're all full up on ready break. Yeah, so they'd gone off north and then yeah. just stormed, stormed down back, south and yeah. nearly captured the king. So another disaster in military terms. Then in 1324, France proves troublesome. Ah, oh, French. Because we remember the one remaining territory that England has in France is Gascony but they only hold that as a vassal to the French king, so they have to pay him and do him homage. Charles IV, the French king, demands that Edward come along to Gascony and pay him homage. But Edward isn't too clean to leave England at this point, so he refuses. Consequently, Charles IV seizes Gascony and says, right, that's it, it's mine again. Is that tactical as well? Because it seems like it's clearly a bad time. Um. And, you know, there's scheduling issues. <laughs> yeah. I, I really can't make it, I'm afraid. Guys, um, let's I just want to get come the diary out. So he must have thought, yeah, he must have thought, well, he won't be able to make it. Mm. Oh, it's an excuse to grab this little bit of land. The Earl of Pembroke goes off to negotiate, but unfortunately he dies on the journey. Mm, so they've got a problem. They need somebody to do the negotiating for them in France. Isabella of France. Ever remember, Edward's wife, she's married to him in 1308, when she was only about 12 years old at that point. Very young wife. Mm. Um, daughter of Philip IV of France, and she was a very distinguished beauty. Indeed, Philip IV had been known as the Fair. Philip so the Fair. she was 12 when she married Edward? 12 when she married him, yes. So that makes Mel's actions even worse in the film. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yes, that doesn't work at all. No, no. no. Um She'd been somewhat humiliated at the start of the reign, so when he was fawning all over Piers Gaveston, not mm. very good for no, the person that was actually his wife, and not only was he having all this lavish attention being um, put on him in terms of patronage, but in the coronation he was wearing some of the jewellery that she'd brought over in her dowry. His coat of arms was being shown rather than hers. It's all sorts of things. Oh, well, that's a bit odd, isn't it? Very odd. However, she does quite well for herself. She comes to... A sort of accommodation with him, and then she supports Edward 
through this period. And likewise, when Lancaster's in control, she supports him again. And as we said, she played that vital role in getting that spark mm-hmm. whereby Edward yeah. was able to la- reassert himself. Yeah. So she's supporting him, trying to set herself up. But once the dispensers come along, she's really out of there. She loses all her position because they're very hostile to her. So she is really trying, but isn't getting Really anywhere. trying, but just not getting anywhere. In that 1322 campaign, when they nearly got caught yeah. um, by the Scots, she'd gone up there with them, and she was at Tynemouth um, Priory, or Abbey, and she was saying, God, what am I going to do? The Scots are coming. And Ed was like, don't worry, don't worry, we'll send someone to come and help. And they don't send anybody to come and help. So she very nearly gets captured herself. <sighs> they had to um, commandeer a ship and then sort of make off it's really stormy weather whilst the Scots are almost there capturing them. That's terrible. Very terrible. And again, shows that he's got more loyalty to his favourites than he does to his wife. Yeah. And when she comes back, she refuses to take an oath of loyalty um, to Hugh Spencer and then was stripped of her privileges to grant land. So why would she grant... Why would she um, swear loyalty to Hugh Spencer? Just because that's how... I mean, that shows how much power he had, I yeah. suppose, at the time, but... Hugh's now in a, in a position of authority that ranks above the Queen. Yes. That's crazy news. It is indeed. And then when France, and when Gascony is seized by the French, she's treated by the dispensers pretty much as an enemy of state because of her family ties to the French King, because she's now the brother of Charles mm-hmm. IV. So she's stripped of her lands without warning of compensation, her household is purged of all French subjects, and her children removed and put into the dispenser household rather than her own. Very much the wronged woman. Yeah. However, she is the obvious choice for somebody who can negotiate with the French because she is the English queen, but related to the French king. I'd use the, I'd use the time to claim asylum in France, I think, and just get out of there. Well, she's very, she is very astute to what she can do. So she's the obvious choice. And Edward and the Spencers, as it turns out, make a rather fatal error in letting her go along and sort it all out. They underestimate her hostility towards them and also her cunning and her strategic nous. Is this another um, powerful woman we see here? Like oh, the yes. Excellent. Yes, fun. She goes over there and um, she makes a truce with Charles IV for, on Edward II's behalf whereby that the Prince Edward, um, Edward and her son, will come and do the homage in place of his father. Right. And be made Duke of Aquitaine. And Charles Fall says, yes, that's fine, bring him over. So they send off Prince Edward, and once he gets to Isabella in France, she's not letting him go back to England. Ah. So she has now got the heir to yeah. the throne, her yeah. son, in her clutches. Brilliant. Edward's a little bit flummoxed by this, he didn't see it coming. And she's then making things, saying she's very cross, very upset about all of this and everything that's going on. She demands the dispensers be sent away because they're hostile. And he doesn't know what to do. So he's like, on her departure, she did not seem to anyone to be offended. As she took her leave, she saluted all and went away joyfully. But now someone has changed her attitude. Someone has primed her with interventions. For I know that she had not fabricated any affront out of her own head. Yet she says that Hugh Spencer is her adversary and hostile to her. He is clueless. He is clueless. However, there is perhaps a little voice in her head, namely Roger Mortimer. Oh, yeah. What have, if he didn't get it when the others... No, he wasn't killed. So he had been captured along with um, Thomas Lancaster yeah. in that rebellion in 1322. Um, and he was imprisoned in the Tower of London. And then in 1323, apparently, he was on the verge of being executed. He probably was going to be killed. So he had a final banquet. And what he did was 
drugged the guards, escaped from the Tower of London via secret passages and rope ladders before that eventually fantastic. making off in a boat that had been brought along. And he storms off and escapes to France. That is fantastic. There's so many more films to be made <laughs> in this really period. Are. I say it every week, but it'd be brilliant. And it gets better because he, when he gets to France, he meets Isabella, and they become openly lovers. So really, it's really two fingers to Edwards here. Very much two fingers. This is a great re- medieval romance because he is very much he's a hard man. He's a heroic. Mm. military man, very much in contrast mm. to Edward II. And Isabella, of course, is an incredibly beautiful queen in France. A, very unusual for a queen to be in an old, openly adulterous yeah. relationship. Yeah. And everybody knows about this. Um, even the Pope gets cross and basically says to the King of France, you've got to send her out, I'm going to excommunicate you, because this is just shocking. And Edward knows about it as well. Yeah, yeah. So this... so. He, they're setting themselves up as perhaps replacement. And what we have now is that we've got Isabella with her status as the Queen, quite popular because she's been seen to be trying to do things mm. justly, and the dispensers are very unpopular, so there's going to be sympathy. And what Roger Mortimer brings is that sort of military now, he's a soldier. We've yeah. got the two sides of it. And despite the adultery, as I say, she manages somehow to maintain the moral high ground. She plays it very, very cleverly, and she has... The Prince Edward, of course, so she's able to say, I'm acting on behalf of the royal family. Yeah, yeah. She gets a lot of support. So in 1326, she arranges a marriage alliance between Prince Edward and the young Philippa of Hainaut, which is another sort of territory, I think Flemish territory. Perhaps. Okay, right. And this means they get a few more troops because they've now got this alliance. So 1326, they invade England. Brilliant. Only a small invasion force, but there's a lot of support growing among the disaffected nobility, and Edward and the Dispensers are unable to raise an army to fend her off. No one will come and support them and fight for them. So despite the fact that he's king, despite the fact that she's an adulterer, and despite the fact that he's got the entire kingdom, yeah, he's forced to run. This guy's John. <laughs> he's John through and through. He can't get any support. But John was better. He was able to fight. Yeah, yeah. John at least, yeah, we'd nearly have the Rex factor for not being awful enough. Yeah. But, yeah, this guy's terrible. So, Edward is forced to run along with the dispensers, and um, they're pursued all the way off to Wales. The dispensers both captured, both executed rather unpleasantly, as are many other people. Edward is captured, and he's in their clutches. Mm. Hands over the Great Seal of England so that writs can be issued by Parliament in his name, but then the, he is persuaded to renounce the crown in favour of his son, because they basically say, if you don't give over and let your son be king, then we're going to strip him of his right to the throne as well, and Roger Mortimer's going to take it. What a turn up for the books for Roger, that's fantastic. So, he, so the, the king, yeah. let me get this out of clear, right? <laughs> the, the king is in prison, being told what to do, possible, I mean, he's he's got no wriggle room at all. If he doesn't go uh, with their terms, then his son doesn't become king, he's stripped of his power... Next thing to death. Yeah. Crikey, so that's, that's like 1649 or whatever it is. Yeah, it? so he's forced to abdicate. So for the first time ever, England has, in effect, two living kings. Yeah. Because the young Prince Edward becomes Edward III. That's our first abdication. First abdication. Not entirely a free choice, but no. nevertheless it's there. He's imprisoned at Kenilworth Castle and yeah. then uh, Barclay Castle in Gloucestershire. Then there are two plots to rescue him, and then a third one gets discovered as well. So it's becoming rather problematic in terms of the security of the new reign that we've got technically a king in prison. So in 1327, 
Mortimer orders Edward to be murdered. And uh, he orders that no mark should be made on his body so it can look like it was of natural causes. This, yeah. Tries to starve him, but he doesn't die. <laughs> so <laughs> reportedly, he has a red-hot poker um, shoved up his bottom. Yeah. Now, this is what I've heard. But I, um, in order that there be no mark, mm. apparently first they chop the end off a hollow horn, like a drinking horn. Okay. Put that up there first so that then the poker goes up and you can't see any external scars. Oof. That, that's, isn't yeah. that that's can Indeed. you imagine the agony don't <laughs> however some people would say that this did not happen oh that's a shame and in fact some people would say that he didn't die at all in 1327 what? well indeed there was a letter from a papal notary called Manuel de Fieschi uh, to Edward III when he claimed that Edward II had escaped from prison killed his keeper and then put that guy's body in his place and that had been used as the body to say oh yeah he's dead he's definitely dead he's buried he's gone well at least then everyone's happy everyone's happy meanwhile Edward goes off to Ireland comes back to England and a hermit's habit before then going off to France and living his life out there Ian Mortimer a modern historian he's pointed out he's saying actually maybe this is true because there are varying accounts of how Edward died none are definitive in terms of whether he starved whether he was killed by the poker or whatever other means. It was even suggested that actually the red-hot poker thing only comes about because there was a 13th century um, story then about the Edmund Ironside death, which we remember when he was sat on the toilet and somebody yeah. shoved something up. Oh, so they're yeah. suggesting that they've just influenced in using that. And their whole homosexual connotations, maybe. Yeah, indeed. Slurs. There was no real proper check of the body in terms of a formal investigation, his half-brother, Edmund, in the later reign, was executed for trying to rescue him from Porth Castle. This suggests he was there to be rescued. And Lord Barclay, the man who owned the castle, later claimed he hadn't known about Edward's death. So there's a rescue attempt on him after he's dead? Yeah. By his brother? Yes, for which he's executed. Wow, that is pretty good evidence. However, um, as Roy Martin Haynes has argued, it was just a deliberate rumour by Mortimer that he created to improve his position at court. And kill off the other And heir. kill yeah, off clever. this other powerful person. Not inexplicable that he escaped, because others did. Obviously, Roger Mortar escaped from the Tower mm. of London. But his body would have been recognised. So if it wasn't his body, some people would have known. Mm. And David Crouch disputed Mortimer's argument entirely. He said there's no real motive for Mortimer to keep him alive. He would no. have killed him. And Barclay was only saying that he didn't know about the murder rather than the fact the that he was dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I uh, sorry, more, the film Mortimer yes. in three D. That'd be a great ending, really ambiguous. Mm. Like you just see a body, but then there's a, someone riding off into the distance. Yeah, Ooh. who is it? Who is it? But as Michael Presswood pointed out, the important thing is Mortimer definitely planned to kill him, and whether he does die in thirteen twenty seven or not, he has no further role to play. Yeah, he's gone. Yeah, but his son, at least the, his only surviving thing is his son's still there. He is indeed. So, that's it for Edward II. He's dead. Or not. He's definitely yeah, not he's, king. He's, he's definitely not king. He's up there with Elvis. So, let's do the reviews. We do the battliness, scandal, and subjectivity, if you want to be a subject, as well as how long they ruled for, how many children they have, and whether they have that great achievement and legacy and star uh, quality, the Rex Factor. Battliness! There are a couple of good points for battliness. Oh, I've found them. Go, yeah. I've found them. 1322, the campaign in England, he did very well to reassert himself over Thomas Lancaster. So this was when he was under Lancaster's thumb, 
but he's able oh, yeah, to yeah, defeat yeah. him and regain control. So Isabella had been refused admittance to Leeds Castle, which he has some sort of claim over by the rebel forces. Fighting broke out. We have the Casus Belli. Edward gets the support of the moderates, captures the castle of Leeds, which is you know not too bad. Advances into Wales. Mortimer forces surrender, and then at the Battle of Boroughbridge, Lancaster, vastly outnumbered, isn't allowed to parley, negotiate, and utterly defeated, surrendered, and beheaded. It's a victory for Edward. It is. It's, and that's undeniable. And that was the point where I thought, well, this is surprising. Yes. But it is. It is a blip. It's a blip. Yes. Apparently, he was a man who did have personal courage. There was an incident at a Poissy in France when, in the middle of the night, uh, the pavilion in which he was staying caught fire. So apparently, in the nude, just rushed up, picked up Isabella in his arms, and rushed her out, saving her from the flames. So he had personal courage, but as Roy Martin Haynes said, is an individual brave and decisive as a king and a general deficient. So we've got a yeah. lot more negative stuff. Yeah, could do better. Indeed. His, uh, his hobbies he was criticised for because he had no interest in the nightly martial activities like tournaments and jousting. Mm. Things that Edward I, Richard Lionheart, had loved. Yeah. He doesn't like it at all. Under Thomas Lancaster, although he brings him to heel in 1322, until that point he'd been reduced to sort of puppet king status without even yeah. a slight fight back. You're just completely controlled by him. Yeah, he seemed totally happy with that situation. Though. He's just, as no. long as he's got, <laughs> well, in that, in that, I mean, he fought against it, but he was just happy to be... He's uh, Yeah, he's a Stephen. He's happy to have someone take the lead. He has favourites, mm. he wants their opinion. Although Lancaster was by no means a favourite because he'd murdered his favourite, Piers Gaveston. There's so that. he wanted to reassert himself, but he just was too weak to do it. Yeah, he wants an easy ride. He does. Um, and Isabella and Mortimer, of course, totally outfoxed by his wife, much more strategically gifted than him, and he had pretty much incited her to rebellion by such bad treatment... And he's so unpopular, he isn't even able to raise an army to mm. defend his kingdom. It says a lot. He's Does just indeed. hopeless. However, it's in Scotland where we really see damnation yeah. for Edward II. Yeah. Um, this is where our British Rex Factor would come in, because Robert Bruce, mm. I'm not sure why he's known as The Bruce, maybe just because it sounds cool, but he's called Robert cool, Bruce. Right, yeah. He was the Scottish king, came to the throne in 1306, had been sort of on the run from Edward I, but... 1307 to 10, there were no English campaigns, so he's able to establish himself across the whole of Scotland to really make... He is the king of Scotland. So yeah. There was infighting English nobles who were in Scotland as well. Not anymore. He's established himself. He then makes some uh, further victories. So Dumfries, Roxburgh, Edinburgh get captured. And Perth in 1313, where Robert Bruce led the assault on the city himself, apparently wading through icy waters of a castle moat. On yeah, the way that's to capturing cool. it. That's pretty cool. From 1311, the Scots are gaining lots of money and supplies by making raids into northern England. So they're you know, encroaching on English yeah. territory. And they're deliberately avoiding pitched battles because they know mm. the English have got much superior forces, so it's guerrilla warfare. Yeah. However, in 1314, they're forced to abandon this. Bruce's brother besieges Stirling Castle, and the keeper of the castle agrees that he'll surrender, but only if no English army comes to relieve him before midsummer. 1314. So this is a real challenge to the English to do something about it. So Edward raises a huge army, marches off there to sort them out. He's got about three to one numerical advantage in terms of troops. Also, the English much better equipped, much more highly trained than in Scotland. Takes place over a couple of days. First day, we have a sort of a cavalry charge from the English. And this is very famous moment where a young noble, Henry de Bohun of England, riding forth 
spotted Robert Bruce, the king. Unarmed, well, he had a battle axe, no armour, just isolated. He sees him, he charges with his lance drawn to king the kill of Scotland to become a chivalric hero. Robert Bruce stands his ground, then at the last moment jumps up onto a platform, steps aside as Hugh de Bohan comes along, swings his axe at him, and takes off helmet, head, kills him. Wow! Incredible moment. He was rebuked for this incredible risk by his uh, fellow Scottish commanders. Yeah, what was he doing? And uh, apparently the only regret that he expressed was that he had broken his axe's shaft in the process. (sighs) So, great motivation for the Scottish troops. They forced the cavalry charge back. Yeah. Great start. If that's who's leading them, that'll give them a hell of a boost. Indeed. Second day, the battle proper really begins. And unlike Scotland, who's got Robert Bruce and other great Mm. leaders, England has a great problem with leadership. The Earls of Gloucester and Hereford have a big argument over which one of them has the right to lead the assault. And Edward isn't really able to control it. Mm. So eventually, the Earl of Gloucester just storms off himself and leads the charge right into the midst of the Scots, falls off his horse... Hacked to death on the ground. Terrible. That solved that argument, though. Well, indeed. Um, The Scots chosen very boggy ground, which was very clever, Mm. laid traps such as sort of holes which they dug and then covered up with Mm. ferns and stuff so you couldn't see it. So the English cavalry flounders in the bog and in all these uh, traps. Really dense fighting, hand to hand, so the English archers aren't really able to fire because they'd just be shooting at their own men. And then the Scots disperse the archers so they're not able to fire on anybody. Yeah. And it's a devastating defeat for England. Huge losses. Edward is eventually led to safety, but a large number of English nobles killed, huge number of troops killed, and they're forced to retreat. And basically, although not formally acknowledged, Robert Bruce has pretty much assured Scottish independence yeah. for the time being. The next three or four hundred years. Yeah. Well, isn't there something about bridge? They all went over a bridge too soon. Um, or a bridge too far, perhaps. <laughs> We'd had that with William Wallace, where oh, they went okay. over a bridge, and then yeah. he came around... Yes. Again, that yeah, was sort yeah, of sterling. Yeah. Right. Bridge over the fourth. Edward does try again. So in 1319, with Lancaster, he'd had that siege of Berwick, which had been captured by the Scots. Edward went up with an army of about 10,000. But Scots launched a diversionary raid, caught the English out, defeated a hastily assembled Yorkshire force, and once again, they're forced to retreat, the English, without succeeding in anything at all. Hopeless. Indeed. And then, as we also said, 1322, the final campaign for Edward, and a complete debacle... Scots had withdrawn because they'd seen the large English army approaching. The English got there, and they had to withdraw themselves because of famine and no supplies. Apparently they only found one cow in the whole of the uh, Lothians. No food there at all. So Edward and Dispensers withdraw, and then they get charged at by Robert Bruce, run away, but he manages to capture some English royal treasure, nearly captures the king, nearly captures Isabella, who isn't given any assistance from Edward, and then, a year later, 1323, they're forced to agree a 13-year truce. Yeah, that's awful. And Robert Bruce quipped that he had more to fear from the dead bones of Edward I than he did from the living Edward II. Yeah, what a legend. <laughs> so, that's it for battliness with Edward II. It's atrocious, really. It's atrocious. There's that one blip with Lancaster. Yeah, in um, 1322, but otherwise... Otherwise, there's nothing. No, and Scotland really yeah. do England over here Robert the Bruce much the superior king two I think two as well yeah no I think two as well it's yeah. a four he has a few moments so we can't give him nothing but it's mm. very very poor very poor scandal it's quite
quite a lot here. Indeed, much better for him here. Lots of juicy stuff to get our teeth into, or whatever else we choose to put in there. First off, Piers Gaveston. As we said, he's controversial, if for nothing else, the prominence that he's given. And his personality is very um, irksome mm. for the nobles. So he's a poor winner at a tournament where they have a nightly tournament where his team is the victor. But rather than being gracious in victory, he's just crowing over the other nobles and effectively going, ha, ha, look at you. I wonder why he likes him so Losers. much. Well, indeed. He assigns insulting nicknames to the barons, which he uses openly. So Warwick, he called Warwick the dog. Uh, Earl of Lincoln was nicknamed Burst Belly. Lancaster was called Churl. And Pembroke, Joseph the Jew. Is he Jewish? No. Nope. Bit weird. And he looked a little Jewish. Mm. Anyway, so they don't like that, the nobles, as you might uh, yeah. expect. Yeah. And as you said, he's over-promoted. So he's a man of low birth, but made Earl of Cornwall, which is a royal title. Married Edward's niece, so he's got a bit of royalty in his marriage. And appointed the regent in 1308. If Edward had been trying to insult the nobles, he couldn't have done it any better. Mm. And the other, and Gaveston just actively trying as well. So yes. Really, yeah. And the coronation ceremony is a complete farce. It's organised by Gaveston. It's almost boycotted by a lot of the nobles purely because he's there, but they're persuaded to come along. When they do, Gaveston himself is dressed in purple, royal mm. colours, fitted with lots and lots of costly pearls, completely overshadows everybody else, including the king, which is a very bad form. He has the honour of carrying St Edward's crown, giving it to them so the crown which Isn't it, doesn't the Archbishop of Canterbury do that he puts it on but oh, he it was brought it. by Gaveston and he then gets to clip a ceremonial spur on Edward's heel which is another very symbolic act apparently one noble got so outraged about this that he had to be restrained from trying to kill Gaveston there and then in Westminster Abbey and the crowd who were there watching thronged forward with the result that a wall was knocked down and the knight was killed in a stampede because they were that outraged. Yeah. So all this was going on. They've got a, a crowd of haters. Yeah. Well, the crowd are just pushing forward to see what's going on, and in the yeah. melee, war falls over. God, I wonder what. But it, clearly, he saw that people were angry. Someone had to be restrained. Well, it got worse. It it drags on until about three o'clock in the afternoon, um, and then they go on to the coronation banquet. But no food appears until after dark, and apparently it was largely inedible. So either far too much cooking, or completely raw. And what's more, Gaveston was sat next to Edward, not Isabella. Gaveston was wearing jewels that had been given to Edward as a present as part of Isabella's dowry, and Gaveston's royal coat of arms were being shown alongside the king's, and not Isabella of France's. That's bizarre. Bizarre and terrible. And uh, the Vita Edwardi Secundi, which was uh, sort of life at Edward II, mm. the contemporary... Chronicle said, Piers, now Earl of Cornwall, did not wish to remember that he had once been Piers the humble esquire, for Piers accounted no one his fellow, no one his peer, save the king alone. His arrogance was intolerable to the barons and a prime cause of hatred and rancour. So in and of himself, he's pretty scandalous. But of course, the biggie here is the alleged homosexual relationship between Edward and Gaveston. Yeah, I mean, that's in itself would be good scandal mm. for the time. But we've <clears> seen that before mm. um, from other kings. Um, it's just the way it's gone about is almost turbocharged mm. scandal. I mean, this is a bit more prominent, the homosexual element. So there was a contemporary chronicler that said, I do not remember to have heard that one man so loved another. 
And Edward said to pretty much a thorn all over him, loses himself in his, in his presence, he couldn't concentrate very well, lavish gifts on him. And in 1594, playwright Christopher Marlowe wrote a play, Edward II, which very unusually made explicit open reference to them having a homosexual relationship, which was very unusual oh, yeah. at the time. So contemporaries, whether or not it's an anachronistic label, contemporaries did have this view of them as potentially lovers, and that was very important in terms of how they viewed Edward's kingship, mm. i.e. negatively. Yeah, yeah. So, other than Piers Gaveston, there's more to go on. He had unkingly hobbies. Can't have that. Come hobbies on. not befitting a king. Yo-yo? Uh, not the yo-yo. Well, maybe he did. As we said, he wasn't interested in jousting or knightly activities. What he liked doing was digging ditches, rowing, engaging in manual crafts, basically sort of rustic rural pursuits, which were seen as being for commoners and labourers, not worthy of nobility and certainly not of royalty. Sorry, his hobby was digging ditches. He liked to dig ditches. He liked to row. He liked to make things with his hands. <laughs> I okay, yeah, right. As you said earlier, actually, it's probably actually quite kingly pursuit now. It's yeah, something that yeah. you imagine Charles doing. Is but at the time, ooh, no. Manly pursuits, isn't, but they don't involve death. So yes, it doesn't involve killing something with a mm. sword. Mm. And uh, contemporary Ranulf Higdon, rather upset, said that uh, shunning the company of nobles, he sought the society of jesters, singers, actors, carriage drivers, diggers, oarsmen, sailors, and the practitioners of other mechanical arts. <laughs> These diggers? Oh, is it <laughs> lemmings? Yeah. What's going on? Of course, the other big scandal from this reign, not technically Edward's um, own making, but Isabella and Mortimer, yeah. their adulterous relationship. Very few English queens are known to have actually committed adultery. And none did so as flagrantly as Isabella. And as she said, it really is a huge scandal, not just in England, where you've got a crisis where the Queen's off there and consorting with who is an escaped prisoner. He's pretty much mm. public enemy yeah, number one, yeah. Roger Mortimer. And in Europe as well, the Pope threatening excommunication to the King of France everywhere. Massive, massive scandal. Yeah, I think we can count that as Edward's scandal because he forced this situation. He forced it and he's and, unable to deal with it. Yeah, and I think it's a reflection, as I said earlier, it's a reflection of his reign that he's very happy to be so flagrantly fawning over peers, but she's equally as assured <laughs> in his weak reign that she can be as flagrant in her relationship with Mortimer. Indeed. Terrible stuff. Terrible stuff, stuff, but for scandal... Great stuff. Great stuff. I think we can definitely give him much higher score well, yeah, than I mean, this there. I can't think... I don't know what he's... Meant. I mean, he hasn't had sex with a nun. No. Um, or a monk. No. There's murder. Is yeah. there murder? There is murder. Maybe more subjectivity than murder, I think, in terms of the scandal, but... This is really high, though. This I is, is. I'm going to give him eight and a half. I'm this. going nine. nine. I can't, don't know how you can improve it. That's 17 and a half a scandal. That's um, that's the highest ever. It's, it's less than John. John got 18. Oh. Uh, Nevertheless, very high score. He's back high score. in yeah. the hunt. Mm. Subjectivity. I can't find anything good to say about him in terms of subjectivity. It's just a, an outright, you would not want to be his subject because it was all terrible. Mm. He's a weak ruler. Um, as we said, by lavishing gifts and patronage on his favourites, first Gaveston and then the dispensers, numerous rebellions, if not open civil wars, destabilises his, his reign numerous times, and ultimately, of course, he's actually deposed as king, which is pretty weak yeah. going. 
also evidence of how unpopular he was at the time. I mean, 1318, a man called John Powderham turned up into a hall where the king and others were in Oxford and publicly declared himself to have been Edward I's true son. And he claimed that he had been substituted as a baby for a changeling who had then taken his place, i.e. saying Edward II was not really the son of Edward That's I. That's treason. Treason indeed. Edward's reaction was to laugh and joke, Welcome, my brother. Ha, ha, ha. But uh, Isabella and the nobles saw that this was rather more damaging if people could be turning up and saying the king's not really the king. It's had him executed. Almost certainly deranged, but it indicates how serious this was really for them, that it got a lot of fuss because Edward was so bad that that almost made sense. The idea that, yeah, yeah. of course he's the yeah. son. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And the- How could this man be the son of Edward I? But he's the son of such a successful ruler. It's like the imagine, you imagine the son of a, uh, I don't know, what's the fellow in Richard Gere's character in Pretty Woman? Well, he's pretty successful in business. <laughs> just, you know, had everything and never had to have any responsibility mm. and as a consequence didn't know how to deal with it at all. Yeah. As well as Edward's failings, we also have a period of really pretty unpleasant characters all across the board. Mm. All the major earls and nobles are pretty unpleasant. Thomas Lancaster... Although he was committed to upholding the ordinances, really, he is not an idealistic Simon de Montfort character, which potentially he could have been. Yeah. 1314 to 17, when he's in virtual control, he essentially just stays in his castles, doesn't really bother with much government, and he leaves the north completely unprotected to suffer all those raids from Robert Bruce. He doesn't do anything about it. Yeah, that's less good. No. Yeah. Hugh Dispenser the Younger... Very unpleasant character. A land grabber, as we've seen, particularly against vulnerable widows. Really shoddy treatment of um, Queen Isabella mm. to the point of almost making her an enemy of state. Yeah, yeah. And apparently BBC History magazine voted him the worst Briton of the 14th century. I can see that. Very Which unpleasant like character. Later, of course, Isabella, for all her wrongs, she becomes known, uh, all her being wronged, mm. she ends up becoming known as the, uh, the she-wolf of France because she has the adultery with Roger Mortimer, brutal recriminations against the dispensers and the rebels during their invasion. Mm. Of course, deposes her husband. Yeah, she's brilliant. Probably fairly acquiescent in his murder, or at least must have been aware of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, as well as this, of course, Edward himself, not a particularly good governor, and 1322, with the dispensers, but also his own rule, it's something of a tyranny. Yeah. So he said he ripped up the ordinances, all the checks on him, Lots of recriminations. We need to find a time when... Because we've got all these, like, Magna Carta under John, another weak one, I mean, he's very like mm. John in many ways, when uh, all these um, little bits of uh, democracy come in, but they're, they're then they're ripped staying, away each time. Yeah. yeah, when do they start mm. staying? We'll find out. Indeed, the Vita Edwardi Secundi, to quote it again, um, for the 1322-24 to 24 period, said, The harshness of the king has increased so much that no one dares to cross his will. The nobles of the realm are terrified by threats and penalties. Whatever pleases the king, though lacking in reason, has the force of law. So they were scared of him then? They weren't. Oh, at that point they were, because oh, then he's reeking yeah. off. But the worst thing about this period, in terms of subjectivity, are the political executions. Very, very brutal, and in all cases, without trial or right to reply. That's case for a zero for me. Indeed, so we've got the legacy of Edward I, who started to treat rebels as traitors, and has the rather harsh mm. hung, hanging, drawing, quartering... Piers Gaveston's murder in 1312, his summary execution rather sets the tone on both sides. So Lancaster in 1322, beheaded, facing Scotland, just avoids being hung, drawn and quartered. But then, after that, nobody's very lucky. 
1323, uh, the Earl of Carlisle, who was called Andrew Harkley, he had defeated Lancaster in 1322, lots of heroics, but decided that to have any kind of security in the north, they needed to make peace with Robert the Bruce. So he negotiated a peace, but was treated as a traitor by Edward and the dispensers, hung, drawn and quartered, his body parts spread across the country, and one of the few honourable nobles killed off. And then, of course, a year later, about a month later, they make peace with him anyway. <laughs> Shocking stuff. Isabella's Rebellion. Various um, sort of powerful figures get brutally murdered by crowds. The elder Hugh Dispenser is hanged, given no burial, and apparently his body was eaten out by dogs who came along. And then the younger Hugh Dispenser, very unpleasant way to go. He tried to starve himself as soon as he was captured, knowing that it wasn't going to be pleasant. As it was, he didn't die enough. Uh, at all, <laughs> <laughs> Stripped of his clothes in front of a baying public, hung from a noose 50 feet in the air, but it was then lowered and loosened so he could see an executioner approaching him, at which point he was disemboweled and castrated. That's not Before being beheaded, and that's in front of Isabella and Mortimer in this crowd. God, they're bloodthirsty lot, aren't they? And as you said, all of these, without right to trial or reply, summary executions. Mm. And Edward himself, of course, possibly suffered yeah. unpleasantly. Yeah. I mean, it's grounds for zero. The fact that he they made peace a month after killing that guy also shows that he's got no long-term strategy. No. He's just hopeless in every way. Tyrannies with the dispensers, murders, brute. It's, it's really a terrible time. Nobody, from king to noble, is safe. From summary this execution. is like, um, again, like Stephen, but what was that period called? The, the Anarchy. The Anarchy, yeah. But it's probably worse. It's probably much more dangerous. Got devastating the political classes. And everybody's unpleasant and horrible. Yeah, dark times. Yeah. I thought this film that I was going to make was going to be all happy, <laughs> medieval romp, but no, it's going to be dark. No, indeed. So, subject, I mean... Zero uh, Yeah, me. we've got no got positive points on. whatsoever. The only other person who got that was Edward Martin because he didn't last. Yes. <laughs> Whereas he... Longevity. He lasts from 1307 to 1327, just 20 years. 20 years of suffering. That's yeah, bad. very unpleasant indeed for everybody. Dynasty, not the program. He has four children, legitimate. He also had an illegitimate son, but oh, really? uh, died before. So four legitimate children, and he is succeeded by his son, uh, Edward III. So a four for Dynasty, that gives him a total of 45.5, which isn't the very worst, but it's pretty bad. Yeah. However, we must now decide whether or not he is fit to join the pantheon of uh, greats in Rex Factor. Does he have the star quality? Does he have a great achievement, a legacy? Does he have... Rex Factor! Oh, is there nothing, is there? <coughs> no, the only thing you can really say is that maybe you feel a little bit sorry for him. I did feel sorry for him. He had a difficult legacy from his father. The murder of Gaveston must have been upsetting. Nasty people all around him. He wasn't made to be a king. He Problem wasn't. with the hereditary no. system. He wasn't. Uh, but no way. <coughs> He's not getting a sympathy vote from me. No. He's not. It's and ultimately he turns tyrannical and pretty horrible himself, so he loses. Yeah, he loses sympathy. any sympathy he would have got anyway, yeah. I can't think of any reason whatsoever to give him the Rex Factor. He's a complete failure. Probably one of the worst kings, in fact. Do you know what? He's as bad as his dad was good. Indeed. Which is big words. So, yes or no, does he have the Rex Factor? Absolutely not. It's a big, big no for Edward II. A raging failure, and he doesn't join his father. He's out of it. 
and it will be Edward the Third next week, a very different character oh, to yeah. his father. Till then, it's goodbye for me. Cheerio.